It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 799 for the 1st of July, 2022. This week, not losing computer files is important to me because replacing lost files would be difficult, in many cases, impossible. That's why having a solid backup system is crucial. In short circuits, scammers are out to steal your social media credentials. Modifying a few settings will help. But the best way to keep accounts safe involves a bit of suspicion and a lot of common sense. If you have more than one computer on your desk, you might find a multi-computer mouse to be a good investment. And 20 years ago, only on the website, being able to use an office computer from home was still a relatively new concept in 2002, but it caught on fast. A relatively small number of applications are essential for the computers I use. Adobe's Creative Cloud Suite, Microsoft's Office Suite, UE Studio, GoodSync, my current preferred web browser, and Thunderbird are some examples. These are applications that I install immediately on a new computer so that it will be usable. Then I can install other applications as I need them, a process that can extend over several weeks. Let's talk about GoodSync today. It's one of three backup systems that I use. Three? You're wondering if that's weird, right? Well, maybe it is, but my goal is never, ever to lose a file, even when I do something stupid. Not that I ever do anything stupid, of course. Well, anyway, consider the applications I use and why. Code 42 Crash Plan is the application that constantly backs up files that I create on the computer's various data drives, D, E, F, G, H, and I. Crash Plan is not intended to back up the operating system and files that are in use by the operating system. That requires a disk image backup. IOMI Backupper is the disk image backup application. I run a manual image backup of the boot drive twice a week, Sunday and Wednesday. The backups are on two different disk drives, each of which contains two backup sets. Now, neither of these drives is stored off-site, as best backup procedures would require. That's a risk, but it's one that I've chosen to accept. And GoodSync, that's the third part of my backup strategy. An additional disk, Drive Y, is attached to the computer. It's a USB drive. I use it for daily backups of work in process. Drive Y is less than two feet away from the primary computer, so I can't consider it to be a true backup. Any backup device that's in the same building as the device being backed up can be destroyed by the same event that destroys the primary computer. Crash Plan is the real backup, but the Y drive backup is a quick and easy way to recover files that I may have lost or damaged somehow. And yes, I do have to use Drive Y once in a while, probably two or three times a year. 
GoodSync's automated backups start around 4 each afternoon and transfer recently created or updated files to the local Y drive. CrashPlan's backups are better for several reasons. First, they're more likely to be up to date, and I can recover older versions of the files. But DriveY is attached to the computer, and immediately restoring a file is really easy. The primary advantage for me, though, is that I can install GoodSync on my wife's computer and have it copy her email, digital camera, and documents directories to my computer for CrashPlan backup. Phyllis used to bring me her camera's memory card so I could copy the files to one of the drives that gets backed up. The problem with that is that sometimes it was several weeks between download times, and any changes she made to files on her computer wouldn't be backed up. GoodSync resolves that problem. On my computer, GoodSync runs as a server. There's another licensed copy on her computer. It runs as a client. Once a day, GoodSync checks to see if there are any new photographs or any changed photographs, and if so, it copies them to a data drive on my computer. From there, the files are backed up to an online server, to a network-attached storage device, and weekly to separate USB backup drives. Much of that work is handled by GoodSync. GoodSync can back up data files locally to a network drive, to another computer, to a GoodSync server, or to any of several other online services. Users who choose to back up to network shares or folders on external drives may have encountered problems with other backup systems. The drive letters assigned to these devices by the operating system can change, and if that happens, that causes a backup application that expects a specific drive letter to fail. GoodSync looks for a name that is much less likely to change. For USB drives, GoodSync suggests using the disk drive's volume name. For network drives, GoodSync recommends using the Universal Naming Convention path. So, instead of drive G, GoodSync looks for media-downloads. And instead of network drive Z, it selects ReadyShare external underscore WD1. The three jobs on my wife's computer run automatically at a time that her computer is always in use. That's only one option for backup tasks, though. GoodSync can watch a directory and backup files when they change, do backups periodically, do backups when GoodSync starts, or when a specific folder becomes available. There are six jobs that I run manually every week on Wednesday, and 18 jobs that run automatically every day one at 11 a.m., the others starting at 4 p.m. The scheduling is accomplished with a system that will be immediately familiar to anyone who has set up a cron job on a Unix or Linux system, possibly a little confusing to others, though. But it's really quite simple once you understand there are settings for minute, hour, day of week, day of month, and month. That no entry means no restriction, and that time entries are based on a 24-hour clock. So setting up a job with entries of 11 minutes and 16 hours and blanks for all of the other components will create a job that runs at 4.11 p.m. every day. Scheduling uses the Auto tab on the Job Options menu. Selecting On Schedule and clicking the Configure button opens the scheduler. Fill in the schedule parameters, and to confirm the settings, you can click the Test button to review the schedule for the first 10 times it'll run. 
To run a job at 5.20 p.m. each day, you'd enter 20 in the minutes cell, 17 in the hours cell, 17 is 5 p.m. on the 24-hour clock. To narrow the run times further, you could specify a day of the week or a day of the month value. Entering 3 for the day would limit the job to running only on Wednesday, or entering 25 in the day of month cell would limit the job to running only on the 25th of each month. Unlike most backup applications, GoodSync does not have a restore process, and that's actually one of its advantages because files and directories are simply mirrored to the backup device. Files are not compressed or encrypted by default, but they can be. Restoring files simply involves copying them from the backup device to whatever location you want. The bottom line for GoodSync is five cats. I simply can't imagine running a computer without GoodSync. Although it doesn't do disk image backups, GoodSync is a comprehensive file and folder backup applications for Windows and Mac computers. The ability to copy files from nearly any location to nearly any location is a plus, and the ability to fully automate jobs makes it even better. A free version for home use is available, but it can run only three jobs and is limited to 100 files. A license costs $30 for the first computer. There are significant discounts for additional computers. You'll find details on the GoodSync website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, scammers are nothing if not inventive. Some of them could probably make an honest living as authors, but that'd be too much work. Scammers who want to steal your Instagram account have started using a technique that seems harmless on the face. You might receive a private message asking you to vote for their product or pet or artwork in some contest. The backstories vary, but they're usually fairly clever. What doesn't vary is that the scammer will send you a link. You're not supposed to click the link, so that makes you feel safe, right? And You're not going to click it. Instead, the scammer just wants you to take a screenshot of the link for confirmation and send the screenshot to them. Here's the trick. The link you'll take a screenshot of and send back to the scammer who is masquerading as somebody you know is actually the Instagram forgot password link. When you send that link back to the scammer, you give that person everything needed to change the password on your account and lock you out of it. Another technique scammers use involves an explanation that they have more than one Instagram page and they want to get their other page on their new phone and they can't figure out how to do it. If you could just take a screenshot of the link they sent and then send that back to them, they'll succeed. 
Well, those are nothing more than variants of the verify your account scam. The messages often appear to be from a contact you trust, but the account has been compromised by a scammer. Sometimes they may ask you to add their email or phone number to your account, but the more common process is to ask you to do a screenshot of a link they send you or to copy the link and send it back to them. What happens next is that you'll be locked out of your account and the scammer will start using your account to scam others. So if you receive a message like that, don't reply. Just ignore it, and then report the account as having been hacked. Overall, Facebook's security has improved in recent years, but Facebook can't protect against user error. And that's what the crooks depend on. Facebook said in 2020 that more than 100 million accounts were fake. Now, although brute force and spyware attacks can be used to capture a Facebook account, the most common method is social engineering. Naive users are presented with information that they fail to recognize as phony. As a result, they simply hand over their credentials to scammers. It's worth noting that there's a difference between an account that has been stolen, which many people refer to as hacked, and an account that has been cloned. Any account can be cloned, but users can make their accounts less attractive to scammers by simply eliminating the ability for anyone except the user to see the friends list. A cloned account is usually used to contact your friends in an attempt to defraud them. Fixing a cloned account is really easy. Locate the cloned account and report it to Facebook. Stolen accounts are more difficult. Once a scammer has your username and password, it'll be only moments until the crook changes the password and then you'll be locked out. The process of recovering the account isn't easy or fast, so it's better to avoid the problem than to try to recover from it. Phishing is one social engineering method. The victim receives a message that may appear to be from Facebook. One common ploy is to tell the user there's been unauthorized activity on the account and they must follow an enclosed link to verify the account. The link takes you to what appears to be a login page, but its sole purpose is to steal the username and password. Scammers also use SMS messages and sometimes phone calls, so beware. If you think there's a problem with your Facebook account, don't follow the link. Just go to Facebook and log in normally. If there is a problem, you'll get a message then and there. And if the worst happens, you need to act fast. The Make Use Of website explains what you can do if the scammer hasn't yet changed your password, and a companion article has even more information. You'll find links to both of those pages on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Computers and mouses, or mice, proliferate, but you might not need a mouse for every computer. Let's set the Wayback Machine, and thanks to Mr. Peabody and his boy Sherman for that, to nearly prehistoric times, at least as far as computers are concerned. Computers were big. They took up entire rooms. People brought work to them, handed information over to the people who ran the computers, and waited for output. These were multi-user computers. Then desktop computers came along and we had single-user computers. 
Eventually, computers became ubiquitous and we had multi-computer users. I thought I coined that term sometime in the 1980s, and I was quite proud of myself, but probably the term is not one that I invented. These days, a lot of people are multi-computer users. Take a look around your house. How many computers do you have? You probably have a handheld one, too. Most people call those phones, but they really aren't. My desktop always has a Windows computer and a MacBook computer. An IO Gear switch allows me to use the mouse and keyboard on either of the computers. Monitors have their own switches that switch from one computer to the other. But I also have a Windows tablet computer that I need to use on the desk occasionally. I had a mouse for that computer. In fact, I still do, but it doesn't get used much anymore. That tablet computer has its own keyboard that connects via Bluetooth, but it did need a separate mouse. The mouse was installed on a dock, so only the touchpad on the keyboard was available if I didn't connect the dock. I am not a fan of touchpads. The Logitech MX Master mouse is a relatively expensive mouse, but it can connect to any of the computers and offer a variety of other controls, including one that allows me to control audio playback level with a wheel on the side of the mouse. It also has good ergonomic shape, and that keeps my fingers from cramping. The mouse connects to the primary Windows computer and the Mac OS computer via a Logitech USB unifying device, but the mouse is also capable of connecting via Bluetooth, and it can be linked to up to three separate devices. The primary advantage is that I need only one mouse, and it can be set up so that it works the same way on each of the three computers. The Windows desktop computer and MacBook computer are on one connection, the Windows tablet computer is on another, and I could add a third device, such as an iPad, if that ever seemed like it'd be helpful. Use your mouse to launch the TechBiter Worldwide website. Check out 20 years ago. Connecting to your desktop computer at the office from home was still a new concept in 2002. Now it's commonplace. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>